0: Chapter three, togetherness. Two weeks later, I was on my feet and walking back to my good old, extremely tired self, which was enough of a breakthrough for me to be discharged. Something that wasn't gonna happen to the old man opposite who died in the night. I held his hand through short rattling breaths as he whispered a strange monologue about life and icebergs. I wasn't sure but I think his last words were something to do with the NHS and the Titanic. Five minutes after his last breath, the gentle old man was wheeled away to be stored somewhere cold until he could be buried or cremated. I stayed awake all night trying to decide which of the two I would choose when the time came. It was a tricky one. Neither had any particular draw. The discharge process crept into action at nine o'clock in the morning. I was sitting patiently on the edge of my bed When I spotted the familiar frame of Lawrence limping towards me, his plaster cast now removed. Overwhelmed by the presence of a friend, I was lost for words, which was okay. Lawrence didn't really need a partner for conversation. He held me in an emotional hug for a couple of seconds too long, then deftly swung round to reveal a rucksack on his back. Done a little shopping, only Oxfam, I'm afraid, but it is Hampstead, so you'll find a high quality of merchandise in there. Made some inquiries. Knew your release was imminent. Bingo. Here I am. Dig in. The black designer suit, maroon silk shirt and bunion pinching loafers kind of worked. Lawrence had guessed my shirt size pretty well, but the suit swamped me, making me look like a thin person wearing somebody else's suit, which I was. In a sudden flurry of activity, forms were signed, prescriptions prescribed and goodbyes exchanged. An old NHS wheelchair had been allocated but the effort needed to self-propel it made walking seem like a breeze, so I left it where it was. My old cap and track suit I tossed into a bin marked Incendiary Disposal and closed the lid on a part of my life I was very happy to leave behind. I walked away from the hospital whistling an improvised tune. "'You look bloody marvellous, Joe,' said Lawrence, "'like a rock star who's just come out of rehab on his way to a studio "'to record a career-defining album.' It looked like I was just gonna have to live with this drug association thing. Joe, I took the liberty of taking a trip to your accommodation, thought I'd spruce the place up for your return, put some milk in the fridge, that kind of thing. Lawrence grabbed my arm. Miserable little hovel, isn't it? I couldn't disagree. Not a place for a person like you with a condition like yours. I think it's best if you come and live with me for the time being anyway. While I was trying to think of an appropriate reply, Lawrence, still holding my arm, took a left turn pulling me with him onto Keats Grove a glorious tree-lined street leading directly onto Hampstead Heath each home based on my pre-illness hobby of peering bitterly into local estate agent windows was in the 3 to 5 million pound price bracket each hedge was a piece of topiary artwork and each garden beautifully manicured except for Lawrence's which looked like it was being used by an asbo-riddled working class family The rusty waist-high iron gate hung from a single hinge, and the garden, overgrown even before spring had caught hold, was a thicket of creepers, plants, evergreens and weeds, all centred around a huge tree. Lawrence dragged the screeching gate open and led me down the 40-foot long garden path. On either side were heaps of clutter covered by large blue plastic sheets. The heap to the left, a mangled mound of rusty gardening equipment. The heap to the right, a dismembered motorbike that it's seen better days at least 30 years ago. The front door of 18 Keats Grove opened onto a dark, dingy hallway, the floor covered with unopened an letters and circulars. The general squalor on the outside was replicated on the inside but pepped up by artwork hanging on every available wall space. Delicate sketches done with pencil or charcoal hung beside large canvases covered in manic colours forming no decipherable image. Lawrence took me on a speed tour, starting with the kitchen, which was grubby. In fact, everywhere was grubby, and in desperate need of a lick of paint, a deep clean and a hoover. The bedroom earmarked as mine, a sparsely furnished box room, was nothing special, apart from the fact that I could probably live there without being burgled by the neighbours. I followed Lawrence back downstairs, where he revealed the final room with a flourish. My headquarters, ta-da! He opened the door onto a fresh white space containing a chaise long, a three-piece blue velvet settee and a piano. Thought I'd concentrate my efforts rather than bit here, bit there. Lawrence pulled the key from the inside pocket of his elbow patched suit jacket and held it out to me. I'm heading to the shops for supplies, like to join, no pressure, more than happy to go in alone. I ignored the practical side of my brain, which was screaming, for God's sake, don't take the key, and took the key. Anyway, if things didn't work out, there was a perfectly good depressing little bedsit waiting for me. Lawrence slapped me hard on the back in celebration of the decision, and we headed out to the high street. Sandwiched between a delicatessen and a stupefyingly overpriced hi-fi store was a tiny newsagent's, stuffed with everything you could ever want, if you didn't mind eating from a packet or a tin, which I didn't. My attempt to pay for the bread and beans was waved away. Mary's taking care of this, said Lawrence. He'd covered a lot of personal ground in the five weeks we were together in hospital. Most of it concerned Mary, his dead mother, who still brought in enough money for him to live on without working. The income came from royalties on a score of novels, written in a Virginia Woolf-like stream of consciousness. Mary's most famous book, Breaststroke, was a fruity coming-of-age tale about a young lesbian who spent all her time at the women's bathing pond on Hampstead Heath. Each day, the beautiful young nymph would end up in the arms of another woman, usually much older. The novel caused quite an uproar in the local community, the first print run sold out within a week, bought mainly by local middle-class women who frequented the ponds and by the husbands of the women who frequented the ponds. A surge of quickie divorces followed, securing the novel's notoriety and continuing success. I left Lawrence to his habitual evening's activity of abstract, self-exploratory artwork and went upstairs to my room. Lying in bed, running my hands along the velvet flock wallpaper. I felt, for the first time in years, safe and secure. It had been almost five years to the day that I first visited a doctor with a general feeling of unwellness. I was prescribed paracetamol and other over-the-counter medication and told if they didn't work, I should return, which I did many times. I usually left with a prescription for another type of antibiotic, which, like the one before, had no effect whatsoever. Lying low for a while, and not wanting to annoy my annoying doctor, I left the house only to buy alcohol or cannabis. and knew it wasn't the answer, but it helped me stay in a peaceful, confused and pain-free haze until I collapsed. A trip to the hospital and several blood tests discovered nothing. An appointment with a hospital fatigue service followed many months later. A long list of questions were asked concerning my symptoms and general health. I must have answered them all correctly, though my hunched body, barely able to hold itself up, and the tears, no doubt helped prove beyond doubt that I had it. Myalgic encephalomyelitis. It was official. A name had been given to my illness. Relief swept through me for a few moments until I was informed there was no cure. Nor was there a medical biomarker, No test to prove to the world that I was sick, not lying. One by one, my friends peeled away and continued with their lives while I spent most of mine lying on my back, not even able to occupy myself with a simple crossword, the task being a similar level of difficulty to a World War II problem-solving exercise at Bletchley Park. I sank into the mattress, carefree for now, and opened the first page of the first lesbian novel I'd ever read. During a gentle perusal of the first chapter, I fell asleep. But a few hours later, I awoke to the sound of someone knocking on the downstairs front door. It was a frantic knock, a bad news knock, one of those knocks you would prefer not to answer. From the top of the stairs, I looked down to see a disheveled Lawrence, practically sleepwalking down the hallway to answer the door. A voice came through the letterbox, It's Brian. Can I come in? Lawrence rubbed his face while his half-sleeping brain struggled to link the name to the voice. Brian? Oh, Brian, bloody hell. Uh, Well, it's rather late, isn't it? Would it be possible to come back in the morning? After five seconds of eerie silence, Brian began to blubber. "Uh, No, no problem. Now's good. Now's good, said Lawrence as he quickly unbolted the door. We sat around the kitchen table, Brian sipped tea, shaking his head in disbelief. I'd know it to go. Lawrence put a hand on his shoulder to console him. I went right to see my best mate, but he wouldn't let me in. Said the crime would scare the kids. He took another sip of tea. Janice has kicked me out. She says I ain't pulling my weight, not contributing. She's right, I ain't, I'm friggin' useless. Can't do anything but sit on my fat ass. Can't even do that for long wears me out and you have to lie down on the sofa, which annoys her. So she makes me go and lie down upstairs on my own. She ought to get a job. So I ended up doing all the cleaning and cooking and, and shopping. Even if I can get down the shops, which normally I can't, I forget what I wanted to buy because my brain's gone mushy. And I can't Uber because I can't stand loud noises. Oh, Jesus, the Uber. Oh, I'd rather someone rip out my fingernails than listen to that Uber. Lauren squirmed. Brian, you wouldn't. No, no, you wouldn't. It's gonna kill me and Uva's gonna friggin' kill me. Then there's the kids and the bickering and the fighting and the crying. I felt sorry for him. Having to deal with children while suffering from ME must be up there pain-wise with crucifixion. Brian continued. We were having dinner this afternoon. Uncle Ben's boiling the bag, it's all I could manage. And Janice threw a fork on the plate which went straight through me. Lawrence interrupted. Sound sensitivity or penetration? sound sensitivity replied brian a little confused lawrence looked relieved good well not good exactly but the alternative would be anyway carry on well she pointed to a cookbook on the kitchen worktop and said why can't you be more like him like jamie oliver i said i wish i bloody could he spends most of his time away from his wife and kids gallivanting around exotic places having a lark that's when she told me it was over He took a few deep breaths, blew his nose, put his forehead on the table and fell asleep. Lawrence draped an old greatcoat over his shoulder and patted his head. Back in bed, I read a dozen pages of Mary's book, stopping at a pivotal moment in the women's changing room at the pond where sexual tensions were erupting all over the place. I don't think Virginia Woolf would have liked this book. Brian was quiet and reflective, exhausted from the night before. The two of us sat at the open French windows in the kitchen and looked out onto the chaotic back garden. I chatted to him about the plants, about what flowered and when. He enjoyed being sidetracked from his worries for a while, but returned to them with a sigh. Can't believe it, mate, it's a friggin' nightmare. Eighteen months ago everything was unkydory, now I've got an illness I can't pronounce, lost my business, lost my wife, and now I'm losing my hair. He leant forward to show me the crown of his head. Nah, don't be daft, Brian. It's as thick as a bush. He was losing his hair. I'm up shit creek. Don't know what I'm going to do. A familiar voice from behind said, You can stay here if you wish. Standing there in a rather fetching, deep purple dressing gown was Lawrence. Yes, stay here. Plenty of room. Problem solved. Before Brian could consider the offer, Lawrence handed us each an A4 booklet. Take a look at this. It was his ME fact file. The first ten pages contained a list of victims who had succumbed to the illness. Can you read a few of the names aloud please, Joe? I'd like you both to take on board the gravity of your condition. Flicking through the pages, I picked at random. Jane Slayer, 14-year-old female, died October 1990, cause of death, heart attack by lethal dose of pills following taunts by classmates. Sean Morris, 32, Died by his own hand march nineteen ninety nine, lived alone, suffered severe malnutrition prior to death. The thought of suicide, a vulture circling its injured prey, I think I knew I could chew away defiantly. But the idea of others accepting the offer disturbed me. I want you to do something for me. I want you to accept the ill, said Lawrence. Brian, the lucky recipient of a new home, was eager to please and nodded vigorously. Don't fight it, relax into it, get used to it, get used to feeling how you feel, be nice to yourself. Do you know what I'm getting at? Brian, still nodding, stood up. My name's Brian and I've got ME. An epiphany riddled Brian, sat down chuffed with himself. Lawrence scribbled a list of things to accomplish for the day. One, wash clothes. Two, take medication. Three, convince Brian admitting to ME is different from admitting to alcohol addiction. The rest of the morning, I kept myself to myself, lying on the bed and letting my mind loose on whatever entered it. I flipped around childhood memories for a while, but nothing interesting caught hold. Then Kat's grinning face appeared from nowhere, mouthing the last words I remember her saying to me. Downing one, sweetheart. I reached for the phone. Half an hour later, she arrived. Kat sat at the kitchen table, scraping away to Carrot and apologising for not seeing me sooner. She'd been occupied with her own dipping form, lying low, literally. She tossed the overpeeled carrot into the middle of the table and gesticulating with a knife, she pointed out that she would not be doing the cooking. Since her husband left, she'd only eaten takeaways and hadn't been near a cooker in years, unless it was to light a cigarette. So it wasn't such a bad idea. The whimpers from the back garden increased in volume. Brian clung to the sides of an old deck chair while Lawrence stood behind him, kneading away at his neck. The massage, to ease his shoulders away from his ears, looked painful. Unable to control himself any longer, Brian let fly a torrent of expletives. Prior to the massage, Brian had complained that his muscles constantly felt like they'd been pulled or massively overworked, and could sometimes twitch with enough vigor to accidentally kick or elbow whoever may be in close vicinity in this instance lawrence had just taken a blow to his face and was now holding his nose cat tossed the last of the vegetables into a large dented pan fishing around with a knife she counted the half dozen carrots two potatoes and an onion and concluded it wasn't enough to feed four she stood up and headed for the door Come on, sweetheart, let's shop. I grabbed my jacket and followed. She unchained her wheelchair from the lamppost, pointed south and told me to push. The radio, cellotaped to the armrest of the wheelchair, blared out a crackly tune. Cat hummed along while she sucked hard on a cigarette and pointed out obstacles in the road so I could avoid them. Pulling back on the wheelchair, I guided us down the hill. Dog to the left, darling. I swerved to miss it. Psychotic beggar straight ahead. I sped up, avoiding eye contact. Pack of dope dealers, sweetheart, covering the entire pavement, coming up in one, two, three, now. I waved myself through clouds of intoxicating smoke, declined a few offers from untrustworthy dealers, and followed Cat's frantic gesticulating towards the fruit and veg market on Inverness Street, which was in the centre of Camden Town a youthful melting pot of old-fashioned and new music, or old music and new fashion, or a confusing mixture of all four. The bustling market full of hollering men trying to offload their perishables was crammed full and hectic. We stocked up quickly with a selection of colourful goods and reversed out of the melee. I'd been in Kat's company for just 60 minutes and was already a broken man. She needed to revisit her notes on the pacing technique urgently. Your turn, sweetheart. Cat jumped out of the wheelchair, pointed for me to sit in it, and started pushing. Bursting, darling, pit stop needed. She hurried us towards an expensive-looking gastropub and left me outside while she used the toilet. Content to be alone for a moment, I tried to regain my pre-Cat composure. My exhausted brain, like an energy-saving app on a smartphone, closed down unnecessary operations. I enjoyed a few moments of relative calmness until two joggers sprinted past. I hated them. Smug-fit fuckers. Jerked out of my jealousy with slight whiplash, cat propelled me towards home. Bloke, 55, skinhead, black leather waistcoat, huge spider's web tattoo all over his face, darling. She'd had a quick double by the sound of things. Skinny youth, white face, smacked out of his head. Maybe several doubles. When we reached the house, we found Lawrence and Brian finishing off a plate of egg and beans. Lawrence jumped up to greet us. Excellent. You're back. Take a seat. Cat had done that already and was half asleep holding onto a bag full of vegetables. Something very special is happening here. Lawrence spoke with excitement. It's bloody extraordinary. A group of like-minded individuals fighting for the same cause. Let's grab this coming-together of minds and bloody run with it. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity, a collective consciousness probing into the bloody unknown. The tomato sauce dribbling from the end of Lawrence's chin detracted somewhat from the momentous occasion. Right. Okay. Now listen, our objective will be to research and develop ways to improve the health of myalgic encephalomyelitis sufferers. We owe it to the victims around the world who lack knowledge and support on this deceivingly complex condition. We will leave no stone unturned in the search for a cure for this sickness that you people heroically carry around day after day an unimaginable weight to bloody bear. Lawrence laid out his plan of action. Brian was to tend to the gardens and approach what was left of the welfare system for benefits. Not exactly forging ahead with a cure, but if it kept him occupied, I was happy. Lawrence would spearhead the campaign from home, correlating information, while Kat and I were to find and research anything that laid claim to being a possible cure via rigorous research on the internet. Kat lifted her head from the table, had a brief fight with a white plastic carrier bag that had twisted itself around her wrist and pointed her blue, blood-starved finger at Lawrence. You, darling, may know people with ME, but you don't have the slightest fucking idea what it feels like do you however if you do manage to come across a cure you can pop it through my letterbox in the meantime a glass of wine with my name on it is pulling me towards home goodbye cat looked as if she was carrying an invisible man on her back as she headed for the door lawrence hopped up and blocked her exit cat stop you're having an adrenaline surge if i am darling it's none of your business it's dangerous is that so well for people like you Yes, it allows you to operate above your illness level. Move out of the way, making the heart pump faster, forcing blood around the body with greater force to supply the muscles with more oxygen so that they can make a greater effort. I have long nails, Lawrence. If pushed, I will use them. When the adrenaline wears off, you'll feel ill as a result of overexertion. I'm telling you. It's like getting an overdraft you can't pay back, said Brian. Bloody good analogy. Like borrowing money from a loan shark to buy a car. But after a couple of weeks, the loan shark wants his money back, but you ain't got it. Obviously, you don't want to give him the four Capri, so he kneecaps you. The first was better, Brian. Cat pushed Lawrence out of the way and was out of the building in seconds. Watching her make her way down the path, Lawrence philosophically concluded that at times the only course of action left to sufferers was to attack the illness by attacking others. Stop watching a car crash in slow motion, said Brian. It's like Lawrence interrupted. Uh, The first one's okay, Brian.